The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning, Restoration Southside. It's a delight to be with you again. I'm excited as we turn our attention to God's Word, Hebrews 12. 18 through 29, as it has been read for you. In 2014, they made a retelling of the story of Moses, and it was called Gods and Kings. And the director, Ridley Scott, thought long and hard about how he wanted to portray God, how he wanted to show God on screen. He ended up choosing an 11-year-old boy. Ridley Scott says this, Sacred texts give no specific description of God. So for centuries, artists and filmmakers have had to choose their own visual depiction. Malik, that's the character he shows as God. This 11-year-old boy, he exudes innocence and purity. And those two qualities are extremely powerful. The reason that I tell you this quote this morning is because just like Ridley Scott had to make a decision in his head about what God would look like, how to portray God, we often do the same thing. We choose different things that we like about God and we portray him in our mind as that. For some of us, we like a God of justice and order. For those of us who like the sense of the legality of God, of being good and being right, we like our God as a judge. For others of us, we like our God as this gentle person carrying a lamb who's fluffy and soft and always our friend, and we choose those attributes to focus on when considering God. This text reminds us that God tells us how to consider him, and that our God is a consuming fire. Part of what will be fun to preach about this this morning and meaningful to me is that this text, which is lined up just as we've studied it, is the exact text that Ted used in his final, final sermon on this earth. And so you'll hear some quotes from him as well this morning. Now let's pray and ask God to open our minds and our eyes to show us who he is on his terms. Please pray with me. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. We confess to you that at times we like to mold your image into what suits us best. We ask that you would instead open our eyes that we could behold your son as he is. A consuming fire. And the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray that we would see him as both this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Many of you may know the story of grizzly man Timothy Treadwell. A while back, Timothy sold his belongings and moved to Katmai National Park in Alaska. He spent 13 summers in a row there because he was trying to defend 
the grizzly bears from poachers. So he lived alongside the grizzly bears, and for 13 years, he tried to protect them from those that would poach. As you may know, at the end of his 13th summer in the park, he and his girlfriend, Amy, were killed and partially eaten by a grizzly bear. It's a sad story, but it's a reminder for us that we cannot act as if something can be tamed that is wild. We cannot act as if something can be tamed that in reality is wild. And that's what this text is about. We, in our particular culture, in this time in America, has acted as if God can be tamed. As if God is our buddy. As if God is only and specifically our come alongside you. And He is those things. But this text reminds us that He is a consuming fire. And the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This text talks about two mountains and then it calls for a response. Two mountains and then it calls for a response. Let's first look at the mountain in verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And then it says this. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The story has been building and building and building throughout Hebrews about how Jesus is the better prophet, Jesus is the better priest, Jesus is the better king, Jesus is the better temple. And now it comes to this turning point where it's caused us to look back on all of the heroes of the path, of the past, and to be encouraged by their testimony that we're cheered on. And then it tells us about how we are disciplined by suffering in this world, which is hard. And then it reminds us what it is true about us in the midst of all this. It's the climax of the great story. And here he uses comparing two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, you may remember, is in the Old Testament. It's where God chose to reveal himself to the Old Testament people who had been rescued from Egypt. So these people are coming out of Egypt and they're being introduced to their God for the first time. They've been in slavery for 430 years and they're introduced to the God of the Bible, the I Am, the Yahweh, for the very first time. And there's thunder and there's fire and there's trumpet. And you see that this God is a consuming fire. Ted Strawbridge said this, There's a lot that happens in the gospel, often in North America that seems to emphasize different things in the Bible than the Bible itself emphasizes. We certainly love God, but the psalmists talk about a fear of God. We need to be reminded that our God is a consuming fire. Now that's not all there is, but I want you to hear that. We cannot pretend something is tame that is in reality wild. 
that is in reality not in our control. You see, where you are sinful, He is holy. Where I am weak, He is strong. While we are not in control, He is king over all. While He is other, we are simple humans made in the image of God. We cannot pretend that our God is tame when He in fact is wild. You see in this text that He's introducing Himself on that mountain so that they would know who it is that they're dealing with. And it's a terrifying scene. There's a mountain that can't be touched. It's a blazing fire. There's darkness. There's gloom. There's a loud trumpet. And the voice that they hear is so loud and so terrifying that the Israelites actually beg Moses to say, you tell us the messages from now on. God is too terrifying to tell us. You see, Moses and the people of God had this sense that God is a consuming fire. The author of the letter of Hebrews is telling the people this. You have your friends and family in the Jewish community who are telling you to turn your back on Christ and to come back to the Jewish faith. Come back to your traditions. Come back to us. And they're sort of mocking and belittling the Christian people because they're facing so much persecution. And God here in this text reminds him that though they hurt, he is a consuming fire. And that he will see them through. What the author is saying here is don't go back. Don't go back to the first mountain. Don't go back to Sinai, which is the law. The Ten Commandments. The restrictions in the Old Testament, which would show you how much of a sinner you are. But not provide for you a way through your sin. He's saying don't go back. Don't go back to the law. If you go back to that law, it'll destroy you. Friends, what are you tempted to go back to? When life gets hard and you're discouraged, what are you tempted to return to? Here the author teaches us, don't go back. It might feel more safe, it might feel more familiar, but don't go back. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to what you're used to. Some of us, do this by making a set of rules which we think are the most important rules of the Bible and we follow those and we ignore the rest. We're tempted to make little rules which define whether we're accepted and others are accepted. And he's saying, don't go back to the law. The law puts you in Sinai and Sinai puts you in God's hands that you have to merit by keeping the law. Don't go back. Because our God is a consuming fire. It's a terrifying scene. Some of you may know the story by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lewis is drawing near to the end of the story. And Susan is sitting there. And she's with Mr. Beaver. And Susan asks, Is Aslan a man? Is Aslan, the one who's a portrayal of God himself, is Aslan a man? And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. 
the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's a, he is good, and he's the king, I tell you. Friends, the God that we worship is a consuming fire. And the people of Hebrews needed to hear that. They needed to be reminded that their persecution wasn't the only thing that was going on in the world. That the powers that be weren't the only thing that's going on in the world. That those who were presumably kings weren't the only ones who were in charge. But they needed to be reminded that their God is a consuming fire. Where in your life do you need to be reminded of that? That our God is a consuming fire. That what you're experiencing right now isn't all there is. Our God is a consuming fire. And that should comfort you. It takes a second to see it, but it should comfort you. You've heard the story here at Mount Sinai where the, the God is portrayed... God comes down on Mount Sinai and he's this consuming fire. But we see other glimpses of that consuming fire in the Bible. How about in Isaiah 6? It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings, they covered their faces. Two wings they covered their feet, and with the other two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And what does Isaiah do? He says, Woe to me, I am ruined. I cried, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. Then one seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand and he had taken from the tongs of the altar and he touched it to my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, the people of Sinai needed to be reminded that their God is a consuming fire and that caused them to hold him in reverence and awe. The people here in Isaiah need to be reminded that their God is holy, that he's other. And what that does to you is it humbles you and realizes, I'm a person of unclean lips. So you're humbled and in awe of him, and you're humbled and you draw near to him knowing that you need him to cleanse you. But make no mistake, our God is a consuming fire. There's this scene I love from the old movie Jaws, where the three friends on the boat are finally getting along and they're working and they're trying to catch this shark. And at one point, Brody is laying a chum line, sort of trying to lure Jaws in. And while he's not fully looking, Jaws, for the first time in the entire movie, shows himself and comes up behind Brody. And he's so undone, he stands up and sort of waddles back into the area of the boat where Clint is. And his face is white. And do you remember what he says? 
I think we're going to need a bigger boat. There's this sense of what he has seen causes him to be undone and realize he can't do business in his terms with that shark. And that's what it's like realizing our God is a consuming fire. A scene that reminds me just of that is in John 18. They send people out to arrest Jesus in the garden. And they bring an army to do it. A detachment of soldiers. And they come with swords. There they are, breathing his air. Standing in his world, holding elements made from the world he created. If he wanted to, he could cause them to simply stop existing. And they're there with swords to catch him. It says this, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you are, who is it you are wanting? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They draw back and fall to the ground. The original language means that they literally immediately fall prostrate to the ground, a detachment of soldiers. They come with swords to take him. And he says, I am he. And immediately they fall prostrate. It's like they knew they weren't going to need a bigger boat. Why does the Old Testament and the New Testament give us this other side of God, this side that we don't like to think of, this side that is terrifying and powerful and overwhelming? It's to remind us, don't act that something is tame when in reality it is wild. God of the Bible cannot be tamed. Not by the way that we think of him, not by the way that we try and set him up in our minds and in our hearts. The God of the Bible cannot be tamed. And don't go back to that mountain. Don't go back to the law. Don't try and make it up the mountain on your own. If you may try and make it up the mountain on your own, you've got to deal with the God, our God, who is a consuming fire. And you've got to deal with him on his terms. But it's not the only mountain in the story. You see that first mountain, the first mountain, which represents Sinai. But we also, in the same text, there's a second mountain, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel it's saying there is this mountain this Sinai this law this obeying as hard as you can as long as you can to get yourself into the kingdom but you who have come through Christ you come to the second mountain and it's the city of God the city of Zion, where you have come. I want you to notice the language there. It says, but you have come. It's saying not someday, not soon you'll be there, but you who are in Christ have come to his kingdom. It means, the tense there means permanence. You have come and with ongoing effect. You are now at Mount Zion, the kingdom is already here. 
You walk around with it. Ted said it this way, even if you suffer today, your suffering is itself a part of the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. So even as you suffer, you have not been forgotten. You have not been left. You see, the second mountain for those of us who come into Christ, we get to come to the city of God. Now, the city of God, this was this place where David brought the golden ark of God where Solomon built his temple around. It's the place where you would actually meet with God. And what he's saying is now through Christ, you can meet with God. Instead of stay away from the mountain, don't touch the mountain or you'll die, you can actually meet God at the second mountain because of Christ. What news for us that amidst the discouragement and brokenness of this world, that the kingdom has been inaugurated, that we really genuinely are a part of the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things, and that we're safe in Mount Zion. The reality is so sure, it's as if we're there right now. And listen to this place that he describes. It says this, the heavenly Jerusalem into innumerable angels in festal gathering. That means that there's this party worshiping with festal garments, worshiping with angels, thousands upon 10,000 angels worshiping and singing. And that has already taken place. It's taken place even now. A party that you get to come to. A party that will never end. A party that God has saved a place for you at the table. That's what he means when he says, To the firstborn, the names are written in the book. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. He's saying there's this party of angels worshiping Christ. And that we are right now that's happening around us. And we're ultimately going to be invited into this party because our name is in the book. Friends, when you're weary and you're discouraged and you're hopeless, be encouraged that your name, if you trust in Christ, is written in the book. You will not be forgotten. You will not be left. He calls us the firstborn because in the days past, the firstborn actually received most of the inheritance. Most of the inheritance went to the firstborn. Perhaps you remember the story of Esau and Jacob. Jacob fooled his brother into getting the birthright, the inheritance. And what he's saying is that as, as far as this world understood, you're all firstborns. You're all getting the full inheritance. As Ted said it, you've been numbered by the Son and in his book, and you belong to him. Friends, if you don't know Jesus, somebody pulled you into the room to watch this service online, or if perhaps you're just checking it out from a distance by yourself, I'm so glad that you found us. Please come back. And please feel free to reach out to me with questions because it's a hard text. But I want you to see here that he numbers his people in the book. 
that the people who will experience him as the king, as the lamb who was slain for them, he numbers them in his book. Do you have a hope or a future that big, that grand, to be a part of a celestial, galactical party with angels in which your name is in the book? If it's not, put your trust in Christ. Ask me how you do that. Maybe you have put your trust in Christ, but you're so burdened and beaten down by the things of this world that you've forgotten, friends, that your name is in the book. And you will never be forgotten. You see, there's this angel party, and then them listing our names in the book, and then he says there'll be God there like a judge. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. God, the judge of all. Now, if you're like me, that thought is a little bit of a terrifying thought. It sort of takes you back in feeling like you're back on that first mountain. What if there is a God? What if he is a judge of all, all of the scariest things that I've thought about God? What if he really is a judge? What if in those last days you'll encounter the judge of all on the mountain? And that thought is terrifying. In one of my favorite hymns, Rock of Ages, it says this, While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyelids close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, and see thee on thy judgment throne. That used to terrify me as a little kid. I'd think about making it to heaven and then seeing God on a judgment throne. Once I understood the gospel, it actually made me so encouraged. What it means is that God has to have mercy on me, and he would anyway, because of Christ. Jesus earned it. So as we stand there in his record, with his righteousness, in his robes, we encounter the judge who says, you're innocent, and you're perfect, and you're mine. Raymond Brown says it this way to the judge. He says, confronted with God as judge, Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, trembled with fear. But through the ministry of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, we draw near. Moses had to quake when dealing with God. And because of Jesus, not because of a change in us or a change in God, but because of Jesus, we can draw near with confidence. God has to have mercy on you because Jesus earned it. And then there's these saints, this great cloud of witnesses. You see it here in the text. It said, God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Finally, on this mountain, you get to Jesus, the better, better mediator, who instead of, says, instead of Moses, who says, stay away from the mountain, or stay away from the mountain because God's holiness will kill you, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus gathers up the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus takes those who couldn't live by the first mountain and welcomes them through his own blood into the second mountain. He says, better than Abel's blood, 
that testified against Cain that he's guilty. Jesus' blood testifies for us that we're clean, that we're acquitted. And he says, basically, if Abel's blood could testify, how much more so can the blood of Christ testify on your behalf? Friends, what that means is your salvation will not be taken from you. When you know what you were called to do, and you have it reminded, and you turn and walk away anyway, his blood washes over that. Our God is a consuming fire. And then he calls us finally to this question, the crucial response. Verses 20, he says, here you had Mount Sinai and the law, and this God who's a consuming fire. Or now you who have trust in Christ come to the second mountain where the angels are worshiping and parting, where your name is written in the book, where God the judge will be there and Jesus and all of the saints. And you'll experience the better blood that you've needed. And so the question to you is this in 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will be escape if we reject him who warns them from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What he's saying, friends, is that reality is coming. Reality is coming. You can go to die on that first hill, or you can find life in the second mountain in Christ because of his merit, because of his blood. Your name can be written in the book. And he's saying, you have to decide. You have to decide. He says, the people in Israel, they wouldn't escape if they ran onto the mountain. And he's saying, how much less will you escape if you refuse him who not only warned you, but then sent his own son after you to accept him and to find your way by his merit to the second mountain. And if you refuse him, what danger you're putting yourself in. Our God is a consuming fire. The Thomas Jefferson Bible was famous because Jefferson would cut quotes out of the Bible that he didn't like and he sort of put together his own Bible, his own guide for life. If we're not careful, we do that too. We cut out the parts of Jesus that we don't like, the parts of the Old Testament that we don't like, when God talks about sex and we don't like it, when God talks about money and we don't like it. We cut those things out and we, we tame at least in our minds, our God and our Bible. And he says, be careful. I set the terms, you don't. Just like they couldn't refuse to obey in Israel, we cannot reject him from heaven. He's saying, listen and obey. Now you just thought, here it was. I knew it was coming eventually. Here comes the God of the first mountain. God coming to get me with thunder and hellfire. This is what the Christians do. No, friends, this is the God of both mountains. Who in Jesus suffered the wrath of the first mountain. 
and is demanding your loyalty so that you can live forever with him on the second mountain. You will remain. That's what he's saying. Put your trust in me and you'll remain. That's the promise in 23 through 24. He says, the world will be shaken in judgment. It's like it gets this deep, poor, cleansing renewal. The whole earth, the whole galaxy, it'll be shaken. It's from Haggai 6, 2, 6, which says, this is what the Lord says. In a little while, I'll shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. The glory of this present house will be greater than the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. I will grant peace. What he's saying is that in me, when the whole world is shaken, you will have peace instead of terror. Friends, coronavirus will not survive this shaking of the earth. Cancer won't survive the shaking of the earth. Sin won't survive the shaking of the earth. Your suffering won't survive the shaking of the earth. But what he's saying here is if your trust is in Christ, you will survive the shaking of the earth. And the only thing to do with such a glorious offer where Jesus does the hard work, Jesus obeys, Jesus dies on the cross, and it's his blood that covers us, that testifies for us, is to be thankful and worship. It says, be thankful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When you recognize that the God is the same God of both mountains, who's this consuming fire and the lamb who was slain for our sin. The only thing to do is to fall on your knees and to live gratefully. Schaefer once said, gratitude is the secret of the Christian life. How are you grateful even during this strange time of Corona and to worship? to live lives of worship where we go and make his name great, where we invite other people to the second mountain through the sun. We get this sense that despite the pain that we're going through, there is more yet going on in this world. We'll close here. Ted, in his last sermon on earth, was sharing about his dad and his dad was reported directly to the head of the theater of war in World War II. Commander Bob, Bob Powell, who was over the onslaught on Okinawa. And so his dad has Bob Powell and Ted get together for lunch and Mary Lou as well. And he said, and it was so interesting. And he talked about what it was like being under bullet fire. And while he's literally having bullets fly over his head, he opens a letter from his wife, Khaki who had been appointed the chair of the Mayfair celebration at college. And Bob Powell said this to Ted, I've literally got bullets flying over the top of my head, hitting the dirt, and I'm reading how frustrated she is because the committee for the Mayfair celebration is not acting right. And he said, you might think I'd find that silly, but I can't tell you how it warmed my heart. You understand? Part of what the writer of Hebrews is reminding you is that though your present 
personal experience might be tough. It might be hard. The Lord might be bringing you through a long time of suffering. He's saying, I can pretty much promise you, you won't get from here to there without incredible pain. In the midst of that pain, it's an incredible blessing to know that your own personal experience doesn't define everything that's going on. There's a cosmic party with thousands upon thousands of angels and a joyful celebration even as we speak. Why die on the first mountain when you can come to the second mountain in Christ Enjoy the cosmic party going on. Let's pray. Jesus, if we're honest, we admit that there are ways that you describe yourself that we don't like to think about. That you're a consuming fire. That you're holy, holy, holy. Because it makes us feel weak and it makes us feel unclean. It makes us feel vulnerable. But we delight by your Holy Spirit that you've introduced us to Christ, that he would pay the consequences, that his blood would testify on our behalf, that our names would be written in the book, that we could join the party. Father, would you move in any hearts that have not yet joined the party and invite them by your Spirit? And for those of us who have forgotten that we are going to be joining an ultimate cosmic party with angels, would you remind us to lift our chins and stare longingly and lovingly and purposefully at our Savior so that we can keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.